0: Advent. I love Advent. It's one of my favorite seasons of the year. Um, And so uh, I'm excited for us to continue on in the conversation that we've been having about Jesus' as light of the world. Um, I love thinking about that at Christmas time, And we've been saying, if Jesus is the light of the world, then what does the light do? What is the effect of the light? And so last week, my friend Joe talked about how the light exposes some things. And it exposes some things within me and within you and all of us if we let the light shine into our life. And today, I want to talk about how the light orients. Or guides, leads us, so I'm excited to continue that on. I want to pray before we start, and I'm going to offer a special prayer for our friend Jake, who we prayed for him last week. We're going to have a time of prayer for him today as well, right up here after the service is over. Jake just had a heart transplant, and there's been um, unnecessary complications that we need to pray for, and so as a part of our opening prayer, I want to pray for him, and then please continue, consider joining us to pray for him right after the service today again, because I really think that the prayers are helping carry him through each of these days, so let's pray for that before we jump into the word together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we believe that you are a God who is all-powerful, that you can do all things, and we pray in the name of Jesus for healing over Jake's body. We pray that you would give the doctor's wisdom, that you would uh, clean the fluid away from his lungs, that you would uh, jumpstart his kidneys and get them going again. God, we know that you can do this, and we don't care how you do it. We don't care if you use doctors or medicine or if you do it supernaturally, but we pray in Jesus' name that you would heal his body. We give you credit for all healing. We declare all healing is yours, God. And so we pray for that in Jesus' name. We also pray that this morning you would inhabit this space, that you would be the one who makes a difference in our lives, that your presence would remain here as we go, as the kids come back tomorrow for these last few weeks before their holiday break. God, give them focus and energy, and may your presence make a difference here as well. We thank you for the school and for their hospitality, and we pray that you would bless them. So We pray that you'd speak to each one of us this morning through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. So we had the Christmas lights question. I actually think the question that we offered is irrelevant. The question is, would you prefer the white or yellow lights like these ones, or would you prefer the multicolored lights? The most important question about the Christmas lights is whether or not they're warm lights or cool. Yes, am I right? Some of you are like, what is your problem? It's a problem, okay? In my opinion, when you come out and if the lights are kind of like cool, and they're almost like shaking a little bit, that's not Christmas feelings for me, you know? And some of you are going, but that's the kind we have in our house. Is Pastor Steph not going to come over? I'll still come over. We're just going to have to disagree- agree to disagree about the situation because um, it's been a little bit jarring for me. I was in my office at the seminary working really hard, like I do, right, really hard, sending emails, and I opened up the door after two hours and someone, Jenny Vang, had decorated the entire place with those bright, cool, neon, they're white or yellow, but they're blue and I literally screamed, slammed the door, and went back inside, because that's how jarring it was for me. But in all seriousness, I I love Christmas lights. I love the idea that here in the darkest month of the year in Minnesota, we put up our Christmas lights, and we celebrate the idea that even in the darkest time, there's light that can come in, and and it makes it more beautiful, right, because it is dark outside. And, And when... We leave our Christmas lights on during the day. We, babe, we need to work on that. But we've got the Christmas lights on. You can't notice them, right, until it gets dark. And then it's so beautiful. Even if you're a little frustrated that it gets dark at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, it's beautiful. The light is beautiful because it's in the darkness. And I love that about this season. I love that, uh, the, the fact that any time that light is shining in the darkness, it's something that's beautiful. For instance, I went up north these last couple of days to northern Minnesota. And up there, guess what you can see outside at night? Stars. I don't know. Here in the Twin Cities, sometimes you forget that there's actually stars outside up at night, and that's because it's truly dark in northern Minnesota, and here in the Twin Cities, it doesn't get truly dark because of all of the city lights and the different lights, which I now know when the artificial light drowns out the, the natural light like stars. It's called light pollution. Do people know about this? So it's the light is actually, the artificial light is shining so brightly that you can't see the natural light for instance like stars. And so if you go all the way up to the border of Minnesota and and Canada, there's places like Cook County where they declare that they have one of the darkest skies in the nation. This is their brag. Come visit us. It's dark. (laughs) But people come from all over the world to take pictures of the stars at night, particularly this month in Cook County, Minnesota compared to places all over the world, all over the country. And so they brag about this, and they have a whole celebration because people are coming to town. And it turns out that studies show that 99% of people who live in the United States and in Europe live in what is considered a place that has light-polluted skies, which means that they're never able to experience true darkness outside, and that when they are outside, they're not able to see things like most stars and the Milky Way. So I, I brought a little video of the Milky Way. Can you put that up there? Uh, Oh, ooh, I didn't realize it had music. Oh, okay, well that was short-lived. But when you look at the Milky Way and you see how beautiful and amazing it is, you see why they're bragging about these dark skies, right? These communities are taking these specific measures to make sure that the light that they use in their community shines down and not up so that it doesn't pollute the sky, so that you can see and illuminate, the, the sky is illuminated instead of the lights illuminating the sky. So here's what's so interesting is that even though I-, I love the city, don't get me wrong, I get what they're saying because when I look at the Milky Way, I think, man, it's a crime that some people, apparently up to 99%, never get to see that with their actual eyes because of how bright the artificial light is. So here's the key from the story. The brighter the artificial light, the more dim the natural light appears. The brighter the artificial light is, the more dim the natural light light appears, and this struck me as a powerful illustration when it comes to Jesus as the light of the world. This Christmas season, we're celebrating what John 1, 9 says, the true light that gives light to everyone is coming into the world. The true light, the true light, the real light that gives light to everyone is coming into the world. And Jesus, as light of the world, orients us and guides us towards God's heart and God's leadership in our lives. The light of the world came into this darkness, and all the candles and all the Christmas lights, whatever color they are and whatever shade they are of cool or warm, all of them are to remind us of this reality, right? But we live in a world of light pollution. And I'm using it metaphorically now. I'm not talking about billboards and streets. Lights. and I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the things that vie for our attention, the things that pull our eyes and cause us to focus on anything but the true light of the world. It's so easy for those artificial lights, so to speak, to be so bright that they drown out the true light in our life, the light pollution, so to speak, of our world makes it difficult for us to follow the true light. But the reality is, I really believe that it is not only possible, but it is crucial For us to be able to be led by the true light of the world even in the midst of the darkness and maybe especially in the midst of darkness in our lives because i think that this is true it's in the deepest darkness that we can most clearly see the true light that's true when i was up north looking at the stars it's in the deepest darkness that we can most clearly see the true light And here we are, the season of Advent that happens to be the the darkest month of the year and it's so appropriate for the waiting and the watching of Advent and what it represents. This idea that we are waiting for a Savior, that we're watching the dark horizon to see just a glimmer of light to appear. And sometimes maybe we all feel just like thrust into a darkness season of our life. Maybe you feel like you ended up in a darkness or a wilderness season of life and nobody asked your permission and you ended up there. But perhaps is something that we should seek out. A way of withdrawing in order to see the true light and to see it more clearly. And so I want to explore today how we can intentionally choose the true light rather than the artificial glow that beckons us towards other things besides the true light of the world today. Because it's in the deepest darkness we can most see- clearly see the true light. And then this, it's the true light of the world that orients us towards what God is doing in our world. It's the true light, not the artificial light of the world, that orients us or guides us towards what God is doing in our little worlds and the worlds that we live in. When we look at the, the meta narrative or the big God story, as we talk about it with our kids, the story of God from the beginning to the end, in which we're kind of living right now in the messy middle, we see God using light to guide people throughout. We see God bringing Abraham out and showing him in the night the, sc- the stars in the sky and telling him that this is how many how big his family's gonna be. You can't even count how many uh, people will come from your family line. And the light at that moment, in the darkness, the light represented something that God was going to do. And then we see in the night, the pillar of light that shone in the, it, to, to guide God's people through the wilderness in Exodus 13. We see them, they have no map, they have no other guide. The light oriented the people of God to where they should be headed. And then we see in the night, a star guides these three men away from their home and they head west, away from their country towards Jerusalem in search of a baby king that they believe this light represents this little baby that they're supposed to find to worship him. All of these stories, you recognize how all of them happen in the night? In the darkness is where God's leading and using light to guide. So today we're going to look at Matthew 2. Matthew 2. This is the only gospel where we see the story of the three wise men, or the th- the three kings, or the three magi, whatever you want to call them. Uh, and it mentions that they are are. It doesn't say that they're kings. Usually, I mean, we we've used that word sometimes. And I think an important thing to recognize is if they were king of something, their names would have been in there. And so that's part of it. We also don't necessarily know that there were only three, but there were three gifts, etc. That stuff's not that important. What's important to recognize is that these people left their home, left their own country, believing that God, the God of the universe, was doing something that they needed to follow. It says they're from the east, so probably some part of maybe uh, Mesopotamia, which now would be modern-day Iraq or Iran or Syria. So imagine these people coming and traveling, following this star. And I think that they're a critical part of this Christmas story, not just because of who they are, it really actually who they are doesn't seem to be that important, but rather what they represent as people who are really willing to follow just a small bit of light and put trust in that, even when it's in the midst of darkness. So let me read uh, this part of the story. And, and just imagine what this part of the story tells us about what it means for us to be people who trust the light of the world to orient what God is doing in our world. So starting Matthew 2, verse 1. are by no means least amongst the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After that, they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother and bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route." Okay, so this is a story that most of us are familiar with in some way. Maybe we've heard the songs about it. This idea that there's these, these people, these men, who have this sign, and they follow the sign. And the sign comes in the form of a star, and they believe that this is a sign that there is this king, this king of the Jews, and so they follow the star, and we're not exactly sure how long, but I think we'll see in the story, it could have been up to two years that they're trying to follow this star. And when the star stops over Jerusalem, you can imagine after all that time that they're excited to come in and say, okay, it stopped here, what do we need to know? And they find, they they end up, because they're important people, they end up with King Herod, who importantly, currently sees himself as king of the Jews, okay? And here's King Herod sitting on the throne. And the wise men come in declaring that some sort of baby is going to be king of the Jews. And they're telling King Herod that. And here's my problem with the story at this point. I'm not sure when we decided to call them wise men, but to me, it just doesn't seem that wise that you would just declare to a, a relatively clearly power-hungry king sitting on a throne. Guess what, there's gonna be a baby king. (laughs) To me, that just doesn't seem like a good thing. So, and here it says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, Uh, yeah, right? I'm pretty sure that babies taking the throne would be a major stressor for political leaders at this time. So he does what anybody else would do and he gets as many of these people together who should know what's going on and he brings these religious leaders together. And he says to them, okay, Do you know where this Messiah, this King of the Jews, is supposed to be born? Now, this would have been an easy Bible quiz question for all of those leaders, okay? So you can just, or Book of the Prophets quiz, whatever, at that time. So you imagine he says to them, where is the Messiah going to be born? Oh, oh, I know, it's Bethlehem, Micah 5. Like, they would have all known that. That would have been something that they knew right away. And so they tell him, clearly he doesn't know that. That's an important point. And then Herod is clearly like, okay, What can the plan be? And so he tells them, hey, we want to know when did that star show up because I want to make sure that I can go worship the baby king. Okay, wise men, hello. He does not want to do that. Like there is no way that this guy wants to go worship the baby king, but it would be wise to notice that nobody wants to worship any other king when you're king, especially a baby king. But the magi must have missed that in magi school. And so they leave to find the star and say, okay, let's see what happens. And so they follow the star, and the star ends up leading them to, actually we're not totally sure if it led them to Bethlehem or not, also not super important, but the interesting thing is, they didn't just do what Herod told them. They didn't go straight to Bethlehem. They looked again for the light, and they continued to follow that, not what this human leader told them to do necessarily. And so they follow this light until it lands over, seems to pause over this home, And they're overjoyed that this happens because after all this time, they've come to the place where they enter and they see the baby king. And they're able to give him these gifts um, uh, and they're really important wealthy gifts. There's lots of times that people try to figure out what do these gifts mean? And we don't know for sure, but what we do know is that they would have been worth a lot. And for Jesus' family at this time who have been displaced and who are without lots of their material possessions, this would have been huge, that they were given such valuable gifts. It could have helped feed baby Jesus for a long time and his family. So apparently, it says that they were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. Okay, so I'm not sure. Maybe the angel was like, maybe they'll figure this out. Maybe they'll figure this out. They're not figuring this out. So in a dream, the, the, the angel says something, you know, wise guys, don't think about this. Like, Herod is not going to come worship the baby king. Do not go back there. And so they don't. And so fortunately, Uh, the dream was straightened, kind of straightened them out. But here at this point in the story, it takes a very dark turn, doesn't it? Because Herod has all the little boys, all the toddlers and babies, two and under, killed in this vicinity. And another dream happens, and Joseph sees this dream, and the dream tells Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus not to, to stay there and to flee to Egypt, and so they do. This has to be one of the darkest parts of the Christmas story, don't you think? A vengeful, vengeful, power-hungry leader causes the horrific bloodshed of these children, and then it turns out that it's pointless because we see here in Scripture and in historical record that he ended up being on his deathbed anyway. If you think about that, he had all this bloodshed happen and then he was about to die anyway. It wouldn't have mattered for his scheme. How dark is a season where the people of God are living under a ruler who's using his power in this way? And guess what? He is just one of a long line of leaders who had used their power to do oppressive and gruesome things. Hundreds of years God's people have been in this experience of oppression and this experience of not being able to even faintly trust their leaders to care about their well-being. Hundreds of years they've been waiting 700 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah declares these words that I think many scholars would now say is a direct foretelling of this story, specifically about uh, the three wise men or the three magi. And it's in Isaiah 60, and I want to read it for you because I see this as such a powerful uh, foretelling of what's about to happen. Isaiah 60, verse 1. The prophet Isaiah says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth. And thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and have come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant, and your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover, cover your land, young camels of Midian and FF from the east, and all of Sheba will come from the east, bearing gold and incense, or right translation, frankincense, and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. And so here, 700 years earlier, these words are declared that in the midst of the darkness, the light will come. Talk about a long time to wait. In verse 2, see, darkness co- covers the earth, yes, That was not something that they would need to be convinced of. They had been living in the midst of darkness for a long time. Verse 5, when you see the light, your heart will throb and swell with joy. You better believe that there was some serious joy when the waiting and the watching finally reveals the true light, the true light that's going to give light to everyone in the world. And I think that's because of this refrain. It's in the deepest darkness that we can most clearly see the true light. It's the light, true light of the world that orients us towards what God is doing in our lives. It's the true light, not any substitute of artificial lights that will orient us towards God's heart for us. It's the true light that's going to guide us through the wilderness seasons of life like we see in this story. It's the true light that will lead us to purpose and meaning that goes so much deeper than anything the light, the artificial light could offer to us, even though it beckons us and it tries. When I look back on my life, and I think about kind of my own story in the midst of God's story, when I think about the times that I felt the closest to God in my life, most of the time, it's when I was going through some of the darkest seasons. When I look back, I think of times when I went through loss or when I felt like I was betrayed or when I felt misunderstood or when I was struggling with a relationship. It's in those moments, maybe not right away, but at some point, maybe as I'm beginning to come out of that darkness, that I feel the closest to God. And I have asked so many people this question over the years when I've been leading groups of people. I've said, when have you felt God's presence most clearly and most deeply in your life? And sometimes people have just a few things of of really joyous occasions, some things that were really positive and meaningful, but most everybody goes around sharing about one of the darkest seasons in their life. After a miscarriage, after they didn't get a job they thought they were going to get, after they lost a friendship, after they were struggling with the pain of rejection, as they realized they had a serious health problem, as they watched somebody close to them take their last breath. It's in these moments that people are able to say, at least looking back, God was near. The light of the world was close. And I think it's because that in that deep darkness is when we can most clearly see the true light. Because the the artificial lights are not there to drown out the true light because you're in a moment or a season of darkness. So if the light of the world is going to orient us or guide us or lead us, then I guess at one point we just need to choose that we're actually going to follow. I mean, the wise men had that choice, right? At one point they said, okay, we think this is what the star is. Are we going to do it? All right, let's go. Maybe there were more of them and those people said, no, forget it. I'm not going to wander around following a star. It sometimes feels like that, doesn't it? This idea of trying to follow Jesus in your life, it seems like it's that much of a risk. I'm just not totally sure, and it's true. But we have to decide if we're going to follow the true light. And I see in this story just a few things I want to point out to you. We'll put them on the screen. Just some thoughts about what it would mean for us to follow the true light in our lives. First of all, I think that following the true light, if we choose to do that, brings purpose and direction. The wise men and every other character in the Christmas story And every other character in the rest of the story of Jesus has to make this decision. Will they follow the true light or not? Will they follow the true light and let Jesus be their leader and their guide? Because if they do, then it reorients the entire direction of their life. It reprioritizes everything that they thought was maybe important in their life. You see this in the story. Will we look to Jesus as our leader to offer us the deepest sense of purpose and direction? Or will we turn to Artificial light. I keep talking about artificial light. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Artificial lights are things that that often shine in the form of like a purpose coming from somewhere else than God. Maybe it's from uh, vocational achievements. Maybe it's from financial security. Maybe it's from uh, the artificial light of self-comfort or self-gratification. And when we step so much towards that artificial light, it dims the light that Jesus might want to shine into our life. Because guess what? When Jesus wants to shine light into certain areas of our life, it might draw us out of our comfort zone. But this artificial light of comfort draws us, doesn't it? The artificial light of that relationship in your life that you know is not healthy, that you've tried to walk away from, but it's just been so hard, and you've resisted getting other people involved to help you step away that habit that's gotten out of control and now it's controlling you. It's the artificial light that draws us to it. It's the glaring light of fear and anxiety. It's the light that beckons us to trust in human leaders or thought leaders. It, it, it causes us to say maybe that radio personality or the so-called wisdom that's coming from Facebook or Twitter or any of this stuff, maybe that stuff is the voice I should pay attention to rather than the voice of the shepherd, of the true light. Sometimes it's just a distraction. It's just things that seem kind of harmless at first, but we realize that the glow of screens and entertainment is actually numbing us to the point where we aren't facing the darkness that's creeping in all around us. Sometimes we have to turn around and face the darkness to see the true light. But the artificial light causes us to think it's not there and it drowns out the true light in our life. Causes us to believe that maybe the darkness really isn't so dark. The second thing I notice is that following the light is often most clear in the darkness. You see this in the story, is what I'm trying to point out. In the light-polluted city, the stars are no less bright, right? The stars here and the stars in northern Minnesota are no less bright. They just appear to be less bright. Some of you find yourself in that season of darkness, I think we all find ourselves in a season of darkness right now in Minnesota. Do you know they said this is the cloudiest fall we've ever had for years? So that means it's the darkest that it's been, and I know that some of you feel that tangibly, emotionally. I'm not making light of that at all. That is very hard. Sometimes it's in the seasons of deepest darkness that we actually, actually settle the most for the artificial light because it's so hard. We don't want to turn and face the darkness. But if we take it to heart, that it's in the deepest darkness that we can actually most clearly see the true light. Perhaps we need to keep looking in the midst of the darkness. We need to turn our face towards the dark things and actually peer into them and look for the light. Don't let the discouragement that's brought on by darkness cause you to settle for the fake light. Don't cause the discouragement to cause you to close your eyes and just kind of hibernate through it. Don't stop looking intently into the darkness until you see a glimmer. And when you see it, you need to step towards it. You need to go for it. You need to go towards the true light anytime you think it might be God. Don't wait for it to be bright and shining in your face and blinding you. The wise men didn't wait. The people of God in Exodus didn't wait. When you see just a glimmer, you need to follow it. I think this story tells us something else that's maybe not so easy to really swallow, and that is that following the light usually means waiting. Following the light usually means waiting. It could have been up to two years that the wise men were trying to follow this star. We don't know exactly, but most likely, if they came all the way from the east, they were traveling for a long time. So you can imagine why they were in so much joy when they finally found him. This was a huge deal. Isaiah and Micah, the two prophets that were mentioned, 700 years before Jesus, a long time of waiting for a Messiah. What has waiting looked like for you in your life? If you have waited for something for a long time and you finally experienced it, isn't that joy pretty incredible? But what about the things that you wait for in life that, that may never come in reality? Is that waiting worth anything? In my opinion, it is. I think it's always worth it to wait and to watch for what God might be doing. Because if we are looking for maybe something specific, but we have our eyes open for what God's doing and letting God orient us, even if the hope that we really want to have happen doesn't happen, we might have our eyes open for something else that God's doing. I really don't think that any waiting is ever wasted. God is always doing something in the waiting, even if we can't see it, even if it's hard. God's always doing something in the waiting, and waiting will always be a part of us, because I've told, I've said this before, it's so crucial to me. Deep longing is what hope looks like on a hard day, and we have to be people of hope. And so that means waiting is going to be a part of it, and waiting is never wasted when it comes to what God's doing. Fourth, I see that following the light often means opposition. It often means opposition. In this story, we see Herod as representing the opposition, don't we? This person who doesn't is threatened by what God's doing, or maybe people in your life don't understand what God might be doing in your life, and it's hard to, to share with them why you're stepping into certain things because you feel like God's leading you, and that doesn't make any sense to them, and you feel opposition. We have to recognize that there is an enemy who opposes what God's doing, There's an enemy who wants the light of the world, the true light to be drowned out in our life. And so that's a part of it. The enemy can try to dim our understanding and our picture and our view of the light of the world, but it cannot. the enemy cannot put that light out. It comes to our perspective. Then we see that following the light leads to experiencing joy even in the darkness. You see that in this story, don't you? You see, even after the waiting, even after the opposition, Even after all that trust to get to where they got to, there was a moment and an experience of true and deep joy. You hear that in that Isaiah 60 passage too, right? Our hearts will swell with joy. Following the light leads to experiencing joy, even in the darkness. And I know some of you who have been walking with Jesus for a long time, you can look back on your life and you see those moments of joy, where God gave you that joy, even maybe in the midst of something hard. And unfortunately, those are few and far between sometimes, aren't they? But I think it's because we're supposed to hold on to those experiences as we go through those valleys, as we step through that darkness. Finally, I think following the light beckons us to offer our deepest treasure. We see these wise men come and offer these expensive gifts. But what is our deepest treasure that we offered the true light? I think it's us, it's our hearts. That's what the king wants. Put away your essential oil frankincense. That's not what God wants. God wants us. He wants our hearts and our lives, and some of us know we've pulled back some of ourselves from God lately. What does it look like to surrender it again? And maybe there's some of you where you're, if you are really honest here today, you're someone who has never really truly given your whole life to Jesus. That is the most important decision you could ever make. Even if all you can understand is a little glimmer of light Can I invite you to trust that and to know that that is the God of the universe who loves you, who spent no no extra measure, did everything to come down to be a part of this world, to walk amongst us, to be with us, to prove this love that he had for us. He doesn't want you to just know about him. He doesn't want you to even just believe in the concept. He wants your heart. He wants you. And we all have that time where we decide, are we going to give that? to him. I believe that if you give that deepest treasure yourself to Jesus that you won't regret it. We all struggle and try to take it back but when you do, when you begin to surrender that I believe that it's in giving your life away that you actually find what you're living for. And he's the only one you can trust your heart with. So I just want to encourage you do not let this season pass without making that decision or talking to somebody about that. I know every single person on this prayer team would love to talk to you about that to help you think about what it means for you to give your life to the true light that came into the world for even someone like me and even someone like you. I'm going to have the band come up, and um, we're going to have our time of communion like we celebrate every Sunday. And I, I got these lanterns here and put actual candles in them, and Pastor Mike gave me a real hard time about how dangerous that was. And so maybe it's not up there on the smartest decisions I've ever made as Pastor Seth, but I genuinely wanted for you, when you come to celebrate communion each Sunday, to be able to walk towards uh, true light. You know, and and I love all this artificial light, but to see the, the flame that represents actual genuine light. That when you come and you take this bread that represents the body of Jesus and dip it into the cup, which represents his blood, You are coming towards this light, and even if it's in a dark season of your life and all you see is a glimmer, walk towards it. Walk towards it. Everybody here who's trying to follow Jesus is welcome to participate in communion here at Mill City. You just form two lines here, and then we take some of the bread and dip it into the cup. It's gluten-free, so everybody can participate. And then we'll have people here on the walls that would just love to pray for you. We'd love to pray for you about anything, so please let us do that. Let me just close with... uh, a version of Isaiah 60 that I read earlier from a translation called the Voice Translation. It's kind of interesting. Listen to this. Arise, shine, for your light has broken through. The eternal one's brilliance has dawned upon you. See truly, look carefully. Darkness blankets the earth. People all over are cloaked in darkness, but God will rise and shine on you. The eternal's bright glory will shine on you, a light for all to see. Nations north and south, peoples east and west, will be drawn to your light, will find purpose and direction by your light. Amen.